You're listening to Real A Theology, a podcast that considers contemporary philosophy of religion from a naturalist or atheist perspective. I'm your host, Benjamin Blake Speed Watkins, and I'm joined today by my very good friend, Matthew Adelstein. And he is joining me today to discuss utilitarianism and theism. But before we get into that, I want to kick it off to Matthew and let him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about himself and how he got interested in philosophy, um, particular in ethics and philosophy of religion. Yeah, so hi everyone. Uh, my name is Matthew Adelstein. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm currently an undergraduate studying philosophy at the University of Michigan. Um, in terms of how I got into philosophy, so, I mean, the basic story is that a few years ago I was having a, you know, I, I've, I've always been sort of at least a little bit interested in philosophy. Uh, I, you know, when I was like 13, I would watch various atheist YouTubers, um, and who and would make videos about why religion was stupid, and I was sort of broadly on board. Um, they were—I mean, I don't think that they were providing the best of that the atheism had to offer. Um, but uh, but so yeah, and then over time, um, I just uh, so I got kind of more and more interested over time. Uh, a big catalyzing incident was a few years ago, like I think three or four. Uh, I, I was arguing with a friend of mine about moral realism, and the friend was informed about moral realism and so this sent me down a rabbit hole and so I ended up reading Derek Parfit and then this just got me really interested in uh, in philosophy of religion um, or in philosophy in philosophy broadly um, and most specifically in ethics uh, I, I have a blog at Bentham's Bulldog and the thing that I spend most of my time writing about is basically just very very long uh, series of articles defending utilitarianism I've, I've written like many hundreds of articles defending utilitarianism from various objections. So uh, this is where we kind of, um, our friendship kind of sparked off is because we, we both kind of found our way into moral philosophy within these very rich utilitarian traditions. But utilitarianism in ethics is kind of the big bad boogeyman sort of uh view of ethics that a lot of people kind you know they think that it brings on unwelcome implications to our moral views or demand too much of us but we'll get into conversations about that in a little bit broadly speaking how do you see really the main thesis of utilitarianism what is what does it mean to be a utilitarian and to embrace the utilitarian ethic so I think that the, the best definition of utilitarianism is it can, combines a few distinct doctrines. One of them is consequentialism, which says that the t sole determinant of, an, of which act one should take is the consequences of the act. So it says that uh, there are not rights as side constraints on actions, uh, just that the thing that an act brings about is the only thing that determines whether the act should be taken. Second is welfareism, which says that the consequences that matter are the total combined welfare of all people. Welfare is just how well off 
people are, but not by people, I don't mean just humans, I think sentient beings in general. So, uh, uh, so in combination, what these mean is that utilitarianism says that you should make the lives of sentient beings go as well as possible. Um, and then there are more specific versions of it. So they'll differ about what makes a life go well. Uh, I myself am broadly sympathetic to the, the more classical version of utilitarianism, which says that the what determines how well a life goes is pleasure minus pain, happiness minus suffering, the good experiences minus the bad experiences. But I don't think that that's required to be a utilitarian. So what you've characterized is kind of broadly construed as what's known as a uh, hedonistic act utilitarianism. So it's kind of just the basic intuition that we morally ought to maximize happiness and minimize suffering. And so one of the questions that now arises is why should we be a utilitarian? So this is closely related to the big question, why be moral at all? But so the utilitarians think that they have an advantage here and that they're, they're given a very simple yet precise procedure for determining what is morally relevant in any scenario. Um, but this can backfire in, in certain ways in the sense that its simplicity can be misleading. Um, applying it too simplistically to certain cases can yield some counterintuitive um, implications that utilitarianism could seem to have. So this is where the objections to utilitarianism often come into and the most common thought experiments uh, run along some lines of a trolley dilemma or possibly of a surgeon. So the, the example in the surgeon is that you're a healthy patient in a waiting room and a doctor has um, five sick patient, patients, but he could harvest your healthy organs, thereby killing you, but saving five. And so it seems that utilitarianism would commit us to having you killed in the waiting room, even though you're just there for a routine phys physical. Um, how do you think is the best way to approach, because these are kind of the standing objections to utilitarianism. If you were to just ask the, you know, uh, uh, common someone who thinks about moral philosophy philosophy deeply, and you mentioned utilitarianism, this is more than likely going to be the common objection that you see. Yeah, so I think that, I, I think that that's right, that generally when people, the, the common reaction to utilitarianism is they think it sounds plausible at first, and then they hear about some case like the organ harvesting example, uh, and then they think that this is a counterexample, and so we should reject utilitarianism. Um, I'll, I'll say one, I, a general point about I think a lot of these examples, which is that I think that actually if you if you do that sophisticated Bayesian math, um, these end up basically not being evidence against utilitarianism, and the arguments for utilitarianism end up being significant evidence. So for those in our audience that might not know, what do you mean by so? There's often referred to this as a utilitarian calculus. But there's also another concept that you introduced of, of a Bayesian mathematics, sort of a Bayesian calculus. Uh, can these be overlapped with one another? Well, so the, uh, the, I, I was just referring to that the, we'll, we'll end up concluding that basically uh, the organ harvesting case and the other cases won't actually decrease the probability of utilitarianism. Well, I think that a lot of the reasons to support utilitarianism uh, will end up favoring utilitarianism. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll first explain why I think the cases for utilitarianism end up supporting utilitarianism. Then I'll talk about why this case, cases like organ harvesting, don't actually end up being very much evidence for utilitarianism. 
Uh, and then I'll uh, talk about the organ harvesting case more specifically. Um, so first on the point, so the reason why people are attracted to utilitarianism are basically because of arguments directly for utilitarianism. So there are a lot of arguments, for example, that utilitarianism it tends to be very simple um, and parsimonious. It's a very elegant theory, and this counts in favor of theory. Uh, and so this is one reason to support it. Um, one other reason to think utilitarianism might be right is there seem like lots of plausible things that it seems like ethics seems to track that utilitarianism also tracks. So I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, so uh, it, the, if we think about what it means, what ethics is about, it seems like it's about what we have impartial reason to do. Uh, and so how do we figure out what we have impartial reason to do? Well, one way of doing this is imagining what if we were impartial and also rational? Um, and I think basically any way that you uh, hash out the idea of being impartial and rational, you end up getting the results that uh, one is utilitarian. So one way of doing this is uh, John Rawls' famous fail of ignorance. Of course, Harsanyi had the same idea like 10 years before him. Um, and it can actually be shown that basically it, from behind a veil of ignorance, one would be a utilitarian. For those who don't know the veil of ignorance, the idea is that uh, you imagine making your decisions as if you don't know which of the affected parties you'll be. So let's say I'm deciding whether or not to punch someone. Well, if I knew that I was just as likely to be the person who was punched as the person who was doing the punching, I wouldn't punch the person because I know that I'd have a 50% chance of being harmed for the sake of comparatively minor benefits. Um, and so, uh, and it turns out, Harsanyi proved that basically uh, from behind the veil of ignorance, if we accept, if we imagine that everyone's making decisions from behind the veil of ignorance, um, then we actually get the conclusion that everyone should be a utilitarian uh, if we accept that things that are better for everyone in expectation are better overall. Um, so as a result, so the, and this is just sort of one one kind of thought that- So just so I can be clear for the audience. So the, the, the idea broadly here is that from behind the veil of ignorance, um, we have most impartial reason to take as our aim um, the maximization of happiness and the minimization of suffering. And that that would be for all rational creatures if they were behind this veil of ignorance, they were perfectly rational and acted impartially. Yeah, well, so it, it, not necessarily. This doesn't tell you anything about what makes lives go well. So it doesn't get you to the conclusion we should maximize happiness, but it gets you to the conclusion that we should maximize how well lives go in general. And the reason for this gotcha. is, is that every single person would, would it, given that none of them have any idea who they are, they have an equal chance of being everyone. And so every single person wants you to do the thing that has highest utility. It's in all of their best interests. Um, and so it's a Pareto improvement at, uh, in that it is better for everyone in expectation. Um, and so this is sort of one thought that motivates utilitarianism. Uh, another similar thought, and I remember this is the first thought that I had that sort of motivated utilitarianism, is like, just imagine that you lived everyone's life. So after you died, you'd spend some, after I died, I'd you know live Ben's life and live everyone else's life. Well, if you lived everyone's life, what you would want to do is you would want to maximize how well everyone's lives go. But that's just utilitarianism. Um, and so, and there are, there are various other sort of versions of this, but the, the thought is that morality is about what we have impartial reason to do. And basically any way of hashing this out is, um, is going to be kind of, uh, uh, is, is going to be consistent with utilitarianism. Now, why is this a, so, and I think that this is actually a really strong reason to be a utilitarian. It turns out that there are very few ethical theories for which there are actually like strong arguments for it, where you can reach it from first principles. Of course, you can always deny the first principles, but there's no way to get moderate deontology from first principles. Uh, there's no way to get 
uh, I mean, people think there's a way to get libertarian ethics from libertarian from first principles, but those people are totally wrong and confused. Um, uh, you know, there's no way there's no way to get um, you know to, to get like Kantianism from first principles. Uh, it's just that we have this principle or we have this view, and then it accords with our intuitions. So the fact that there are so many very strong arguments for utilitarianism just from first principles, uh, where uh, I, is extraordinarily surprising on the hypothesis that utilitarianism is false. We'd expect the correct ethical view to be able to be proved, I'm putting that term in air quotes, uh, given that you can all, of course, deny the principles, but uh, to, to be reached from first principles, that would be very surprising if it were wrong, but predicted on the hypothesis. And so when you say first principles, do you mean first principles like common normative judgments like pain is bad or happiness is good? Um, what do you mean by first principles just for the audience? Well, so what, what I mean by first principles is broadly the types of kind of broad moral intuitions that are not about specific cases. So, uh, if, so if you're asked why you're a moderate deontologist, there's not going to be some argument that you'll give for moderate deontology the way you would, what you would say will generally be something like, well, I think moderate deontology best accounts for our intuitions. It doesn't, uh, which I'll, I'll explain why it doesn't later. But um, but it, uh, utilitarianism has this extra advantage over other theories, which is that there are various features of the theory that make it plausible. There are various arguments for it. Um, and so if we imagine, like, like pretend we hadn't looked at any of the cases yet, um, and we were just we were just sort of considering abstractly what things we think matter. Well, it seems like utilitarianism would just be utterly crushing all of the rest of the theories in that there are lots of good arguments for it um, that appeal to diverse sets of very plausible principles. Um, and uh, and so and uh, and also it's very theoretically virtuous. So all of this ends up really favoring utilitarianism and it ends up being really strong evidence. Um, so then we get to the the alleged evidence against utilitarianism which is basically that there are lots of cases where utilitarianism says things that strike us as unintuitive. And so I think that the broad methodological approach is, uh, you know, people, you know, they think, okay, this utilitarianism thing, it sounds sort of plausible, especially when they hear about the veil of ignorance stuff. And then they're like, wait, but it says you should harvest organs. Okay, so then they decide to abandon it. Um, I'll, I'll first make a point about methodology. This is not a good moral methodology. And the reason why it's not a good moral methodology is that we know that our moral intuitions are wrong at least a sizable portion of the time. We know this given that our moral intuitions are very often in conflict with one another, and given that our moral intuitions, uh, we have uh, ample historical evidence that shows that our moral intuitions are very often wrong, um, and ample evolutionary explanation. And so we know that our intuitions are gonna be wrong. And so- what we So we have psychological evidence that our intuitions are uh, wrong because they conflict. It's like they can't all be right. Right. Um, and, and, we, and when we look at how bad the moral intuitions of many previous societies are, we know that our moral intuitions are going to be wrong, at least a sizable portion of them. Um, and so, so what we'd expect of the correct moral view is that there are going to be some cases where the correct moral view is going to say things that sound unintuitive. And so if some data point is predicted by a hypothesis, then it's not evidence against the hypothesis. Well, I mean, it would depend on the relative uh, hypothesis ratio between the various hypotheses. But, uh, but so the fact that there are places where our intuitions diverge from utilitarianism is what you'd expect if utilitarianism were correct. Um, given that the, the space of possible thought experiments is literally infinite, you'd expect there to be a whole lot of scenarios where even the correct moral view would diverge from our intuitions. Um, so, so as a result, just the mere existence of apparent counterexamples is not a good reason to stop being a utilitarian. 
Uh, here's, I think, the, the important point. When I think we carefully examine a lot of these scenarios uh, that are supposed to be counterexamples to utilitarianism, then uh, I think that they end up not seeming very much like counterexamples. They end up seeming like cases where utilitarianism, when we really carefully reflect, they end up seeming like cases where utilitarianism gets the correct result, uh, even when it seemed wrong at first. Uh, so I'll give, I'll give one brief example, and then I'll talk about the organ harvesting case. So I think the most famous example of this is the repugnant conclusion, with which Ben is, is quite familiar. Um, so, By the way, we had a discussion, it was probably about a year ago, on the repugnant conclusion on uh, Matthew's channel. So use this as an opportunity to plug <laughs> yeah, your channel. So, yeah, I have a channel <laughs> called Deliberation Under Ideal Conditions. I had a chat with Ben about a year ago about the repugnant conclusion. Um, where we definitively solved it. So the idea is that, um, so the repugnant conclusion is the idea that for any population of 10 billion people living great lives, uh, it's the idea that there's a better world that consists of a vast number of people living lives that are just barely worth living. And lots of people think that sounds repugnant if you have utopia for 10 billion people. How could it be better to just have a bunch of people with barely worthwhile lives? That seems, that seems really unintuitive. Um, but it actually turns out that um, and so utilitarianism says this thing, and then it, our common sense intuitions say the opposite. But it actually turns out that once we start carefully reflecting, it turns out that you get all sorts of paradoxes if you deny the repugnant conclusion. So I'll give two examples of principles that require us to accept the repugnant conclusion. One of them is that if we accept both transitivity, which says that if A is better than B and B is better than C, then A is better than C. And transitivity is very obvious, and it has various arguments for it. Uh, which uh, Michael Humer has a paper on this called In Defense of Repugnance. Johann Gustafsson has a book uh, called Money Pump Arguments, where he provides another very powerful argument uh, for transitivity. But transitivity is also just very obvious. If one thing's better than another thing, and the other thing's better than the third thing, then the first thing's better than the th third thing, obviously. And it strikes nearly everyone as obvious. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so if we accept transitivity, and then we also accept that if you have some number of people living lives at some welfare level, making their welfare level just slightly lower and then making there be a lot more of them is an improvement, then we get the repugnant conclusion. Given that you take 10, let's say that the 10 billion people with welfare level, let's say their welfare level is 100,000. So they have 100,000 units of happiness, let's say. Well, another world with, uh, so there are 10 billion people like that, another world with 20 billion people at uh, 9,000 units of welfare that's going to be better. Another world with 40 billion at 8,000 units of welfare is better. And so the point is that we can just keep making it so that their welfare decreases a little bit and the number increases. And at each step of the way, it seems like that's an improvement uh, until we get to this repugnant conclusion. So it, this conclusion, which seemed unintuitive at first, uh, actually ends up being a conclusion that we have to reject on pain of uh, accepting very implausible implications. Um, so in that sense, it's one of the very few theorems that we can actually prove from certain, like if we take certain normative claims as axiomatic, the repugnant conclusion just follows from it. There's there's really no way to deny, to avoid the, republic, the repugnant conclusion. Yeah, and he, Michael Humer also has a proof of this. So he appeals to three axioms. The first one is, if you make everyone better off and then add new people with positive welfare, that improves the world. And then the second one is that uh, if you have two worlds and one has higher average utility, total utility, and more equal distribution of utility than another world, then it's a better world. And the third one is transitivity. Um, 
the reason why this is uh, why, why the the thing that shows the reason why this entails we accept the repugnant conclusion. So suppose you start with ten billion people with awesome lives, um, and then you make all of their lives a bit better, and then add Google people. Google is ten is uh, ten to the power of hundred. You add Google people with uh, 0.5 units of utility. Well, that's an improvement as per the first principle, given that you made everyone better off and added new people with positive welfare. Uh, and then you take another world where you have Google people, Google plus 10 billion people, with, with each of whom have one unit of utility that has higher average utility, total utility, and more equal distribution of utility. And so it follows by transitivity that the third world would be better than the first world. Um, so there, there are like, and there, and there are like, like, uh, like six or seven of these proofs where you, that appeal to distinct examples of very plausible principles. Um, so there, there, here's a case where utilitarianism says a thing. We carefully reflect on the thing, and then it turns out that utilitarianism, uh, when we carefully reflect, turns out to be right. Um, now I think that this is especially now. Let now let me address the organ harvesting example. Finally, after all that. Oh wait, no, sorry. I have one more thing to say before I address the organ harvesting. <laughs> So I think a decent analogy for the way that our um, for the, the way that utilitarianism works is um, imagine there was some there was some equation and you thought that the equation uh, you thought it got the right answer okay um, and so in order to double check it so the equation is analogous to utilitarianism and you had some reason to think like it seemed there were various proofs from it that you sort of half remembered. So you thought that it was very plausible that the equation was true. So like you start out with a decently high prior probability of the equation being true. Um, and then in order to, to test the equation, what you do is you get, you get the answers to the math problems from your friend. Um, and you know that your friend gets the right answer 90% of the time. Uh, and uh, so you look at it and it turns out that the equation ends up agreeing with your friend 90% of the time. Um, well, even though there are the, there's the 10% of cases and you might say, ah, you know, uh, this is, this is prima facie evidence. You know, this is a case where we, uh, should, where this, we have a, we say there's a 90, you know, for this problem, it says this thing is true, but because of my friend saying the opposite, I have a 90, I think there's a 90% chance that, uh, that this thing is not true. But the point is that when we consider it, um, uh, when, when g given that you'd expect there to be cases that arise like this, where it diverges from our intuitions, um, or in this case, where it, or in this case, where it diverges from the answer sheet given by our friends, it actually ends up not being any evidence. Um, and so, as a result, I think that even the cases where utilitarianism diverges from our intuitions end up not being evidence. And then imagine that every time you take an example of this, where uh, our, your friends answer diverges from the equation, you have other ways of checking to see if they get the right answer. And every single time you conclude they get the wrong answer. Well, then you can, should conclude that that equation that you're using is definitely right. Um, basically, everything that it predicts ends up being confirmed. And, uh, and so you just have really good evidence for it. Um, and this seems to be, I think, the situation in normative ethics. Um, so now, finally, organ harvesting. Um, so I think a few, a few points are worth making about the organ harvesting case. One of them is that uh, I think that basically to deny that you should kill people and harvest organs, you have to think that, that there's some significant sense in which rights exist. Um, so you have to think basically that, so uh, so imagine, so so if you shouldn't kill one person to save five um, from dying of organ failure, uh, then it seems like that requires saying basically that there are these side constraints of rights where you shouldn't do it. There's no other account that anyone's ever given 
of why it's wrong that doesn't involve appealing to rights in at least some way. Or maybe it'll appeal to some concept adjacent to rights where it's like, you know, uh, you know it's wrong to do harm, but allowing or like a distinction between doing and allowing. But so the basic point is that it's going to require invoking something like rights, some distinction between taking some act and preventing the act. Uh, but it actually turns out that, that rights lead to just all sorts of big problems and paradoxes. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've, I, I recently had a debate on my blog with, tr with uh, Truth Teller, who's another person in the philosophy of religion space, uh, which I think you all, uh, the, the debate's worth reading. Um, but just the opening statement uh, is where I lay out basically, um, basically all of the problems for rights. Uh, but I'll just, let me just list a few. I mean, one of them is just an intuition that, remember, for this to be a counterexample to consequentialism, which says that what determines the rightness of an act is the state of affairs that it brings about, one has to think that in this case, uh, harvesting the person's organs brings about a better state of affairs. And so they have to think it's wrong to do it, even though it makes things go better. And so if you accidentally did it, that would be great. But nonetheless, it's wrong to do it. And that seems like a very strange conclusion. Um, so that, that that's just one kind of reason thing it might be the case. Uh, one other kind of significant reason is that, um, so uh, the following principle seems, seems sort of plausible. Suppose you do an, a wrong action and you have the ability to undo the wrong action before it's affected anyone. It seems like you should do it. Um, but actually I think deontology or, or basically all flavors of non-consequentialism are gonna be committed to denying this view. So let's imagine, um, uh, and all, all views that hold the intuitive judgment about the organ harvesting case will have to do it. Um, so let's imagine you stumble into a hospital um, and there's one person with a full, uh, or there, there's one person, there are five people with, uh, with organs. And what you can do is you can take the organs out of each of the five people and put them in one person. So you kill five to save one. That's clearly wrong. Well, now suppose that someone informs you actually a year ago, you put, took the organs from the one person and placed them into the five, but they've all been in comas ever since. So no one has ever found out about any of this. Uh, no one, no one knows about it. It's, it's, all, it's all been kept secret. So no one's been harmed yet. Um, well, if that's true, then uh, really, you know, putting the organs from the five into the one would be undoing what you did a year ago before it's affected anyone. And yet, obviously you shouldn't kill, five, kill the five to save the one. Um, and so the organ harvesting, the person defending this, why they have to think basically that you should sometimes kill, uh, essentially kill five to save one. Um, if a year ago you harvested the one's organs to put them in the five, uh, they'll have to either think that or deny that you should um, undo that if you do a wrong thing and you can undo it before it's affected anyone, then you should undo it. But both of these are really obvious principles and uh, and more obvious than the intuitions about the organ harvesting case. And this is just this is just one of the arguments uh, of which there are many. Um, so uh, and then so so there are lots of these arguments that show kind of broad structural problems, uh, paradoxes for any view that says that you should harvest the organs. But I think that one one thing that's worth noting is that in the real world. The real world is not a philosophy seminar. The real world is not a case where you have absolute certainty that there will be no deleterious side effects. And the real world, if you harvested someone's organs, actually, that would lead to almost certainly to disastrous outcomes. People would be afraid to go into a hospital. Uh, uh, it would, you know, result in decreased trust in our medical system. Um, it, it, like, it's unlikely that the organs would actually be able to be uh, put in the person. Uh, it's plausible that you'd lose your medical license. It actually just turned out that as an empirical fact, lots of organs are thrown away. There's no way you wouldn't get caught, et cetera. So there are just all these very significant side effects. 
And so the scenario that we're thinking of is like a scenario where it's like the real world scenario, except you somehow stipulate away all of the negative side effects. But then when you stipulate away all the negative side effects, it's not really clear that we have uh, clear intuitions about the case. One way to see this is um, to, to make it clear that just how different the scenario um, uh, is from the, the actual scenario where a real world doctor harvests organs is uh, something, Richard Chappell has, an art, has a blog post on this called Ethically Alien Thought Experiments. And the idea is that if the scenario looks like a real world scenario, but it actually is very, very different, what we want to do is we want to make that scenario involve aliens in order to uh, to make it clear just how different the scenario is from, our actual, from the scenarios that we're actually facing in the real world. Uh, so the example that Richard gives here is, let's imagine that there are aliens who have no way of detecting us. Um, and there are five aliens that are going to, and so uh, aliens, they, you know, get unconscious in groups of six. Um, and one of them can uh, give up their life to save the other five. But this one's going to choose not to. And you can force them to do that, and no one will ever find out. Um, well, in that case, it, like, it doesn't seem at all, that, that seems like the better version of the organ harvesting case, where we're not importing our intuitions about actual cases in which doctors harvest organs. Uh, and in that case, I don't think we have clear intuitions about what's the right thing to do. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think that basically there's the, the most plausible account is going to say that if you harvesting organs would have no deleterious side effects on anything beyond just bringing that one death, uh, then you ought to do it. So now that we, I know we spent a lot of time kind of motivating the utilitarian tradition, um, but that was all kind of to lay groundwork for what we really wanted to talk about that tonight, which is the relationship between utilitarianism and theism, because that's quite a fraught relationship. So most of the theists that I encounter and discuss moral philosophy with um, have a lot of pushback on utilitarianism, and I think that that is justified. Um, so I think there's a very simple argument against theo theism from utilitarianism, and it goes kind of broadly like this. So the first premise is that theism and utilitarianism are incompatible. The second premise is that utilitarianism is true. And so then the conclusion is that theism is false. Now, this might, you know, might not be that convincing of an argument, but why is it why, why does it motivate certain people to believe things the way they do? So I, I think there is something to this because I think it's very easy to motivate the first premise that theism and utilitarianism are incompatible. So that argument would look something like, given utilitarianism, um, theism entails God creates a hedonistic paradise. He would create a world in which he maximized happiness and he minimized suffering. And then the second premise of this argument would be, well, the actual world is obviously not a hedonistic paradise. Um, happiness is not maximized and suffering is not minimized. Um, so it would follow from that, from those two premises, that theism and utilitarianism, utilitarianism are incompatible. So if you think um, that utilitarianism is a plausible view, if you think utilitarianism is more plausible than theism, then you have a reason to think that theism is false. Um, but one man's modus ponens is another man's modus tollens, um, as the saying goes. And so the theist has a response here. And they can say, look, well, actually, the plausibility that we have for theism, if theism is more plausible than utilitarianism, then we have some reason to think utilitarianism is false. So the theist can reply, you know, theism is true. Theism and utilitarianism are incompatible. This is the premise that utilitarian helped themselves to earlier. And so that they can conclude 
um, that utilitarianism is, is false. So this is well known in the literature as a Morian shift. And so the question here then becomes, what is more plausible, theism or utilitarianism? And so that's where I kind of want to start our discussion of, because um, I obviously think utilitarianism um, is more plausible than theism. But I might be biased in this in the sense that I've come from a rich utilitarian tradition and I'm an atheologian. I think that theism is false. I think there are decisive objections to theism. But where, how do you see the relationship between theism and utilitarianism? Do you think that their incompatibility can be resolved or do you think that utilitarianism is just straightforward evidence against theism? Well, I think it's certainly evidence against theism. I mean, one reason is that it makes the problem of evil much thornier, um, given that nearly all theodicies just evaporate uh, in the face of utilitarianism. So, you know, it's like, why, why is that, you know, why is there suffering? And the answer is because it builds our soul. Well, you know, at least on the hedonistic view of utilitarianism, uh, soul building is not valuable except as a means towards greater happiness. So, uh, and God could just create us arbitrarily happy. Um, so as a result, basically just all the theodicies go away. Now there, there's, there end up being some weird puzzles relating to like, so it turns out it's, it's plausible that there's no best world, um, given that, you know, for each world, you could just add another being that has a higher, uh, with the repugnant conclusion guarantees that. So like the actual world can't be the best possible world because we can just imagine a world with more or less happy sentient creatures in it. Right. Yeah, so I think that, but, and so you might say that given that, uh, that there can't be a best possible world, a perfectly good God would just, would just pick one, um, pick one that's like very good. But I mean, so a few points. A world that's good enough, I think is what Robert Adams' argument is here, is that God doesn't have to build, create a best possible world. He just has to create a world that's good enough. Yeah, well, so I think a few points are worth, so, like, I, I think a decent analogy is, like, I mean, imagine a mathematician. So, like, there, there, there are various, uh, there's something called, you know, the, the biggest number contest where mathematicians will try to generate the biggest number. And that's actually, it's very entertaining. Um, but obviously, there is no biggest number simpliciter, but just, uh, you know, there are, like, you know, there are very creative ways that mathematicians can generate very large numbers and prove that they're larger than other numbers. Um, and so, imagine the, the greatest possible being, uh, in this greatest number of competition, what would they do? Well, I'd say a few things. Number one, I, I don't think there is such a being, given that for any being, you could imagine a being generating a number, any arbitrarily amount bigger than the number that, that the other being does, given that you could just always multiply the previous number by 10 billion or come up with some other creative function to uh, give give the number. Um, so I don't think that there, and I think and similarly in uh, the theism case, uh, I think that basically we should conclude that in a similar sense, if utilitarianism is true, uh, and I think this is going to be also be true, uh, even if utilitarianism isn't true, I think this is just a dis de decisive objection to theism. Um, but uh, uh, that there just isn't going to be a greatest possible being. The following sense of the principle seems plausible, and especially so if we accept utilitarianism. Uh, if you have two beings that are otherwise identical, but one of them is motivated to, and thus brings about a world that's one quadrillion times better than the other world, then that's a greater being. That seems really <laughs> like a really obvious principle. Um, well, but it actually turns out that, you know, you could imagine a being that's exactly like God in motive and disposition, 
that that creates a world that's a quadrillion times better. Certainly on a utilitarianism, I think on any plausible view, given that you can always just make more people and you can always make their well-being higher. Um, and so as a result of this, we get the conclusion that there can't be a greatest possible being. Um, so, so I think the first the first takeaway from this is that there isn't greatest possible being if utilitarianism is true, almost certainly. But then the second one is that uh, let's imagine what we'd expect. Like, okay, let's imagine that there was a best possible mathematician in this, you know, writing out the biggest number contest. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I th this is probably you know, impossible. This is certainly impossible. But um, but but if if there was like, you know, one way to, to see what the greatest of something would be is to extrapolate out, okay, as things get better, as things get more in some direction, uh, what is the trend, um, so to speak? Uh, and so what you wouldn't expect is this mathematician spending about, even if they had an arbitrarily large amount of time to write the number, you wouldn't expect them spending about 13 billion years, while most of it having a world, you know, just writing zero plus zero plus zero for the first, like, nine billion years, and then writing a series of negative numbers that make their, their number uh, like far into the negative. Um, so you wouldn't, you would, what you'd expect is for, uh, you know, them, them to be just generating this very creative and very large number. Um, but uh, in, the case, in, the, in, the, in the case of theism, what we see is basically for the first many billion years of the universe, there was nothing of value. And then uh, almost certainly for the next billion years after that, there was negative value at least by utilitarian lights. Given that most animals in nature live short lives of intense suffering, most animals are what are called our strategists, which means they give birth to enormous numbers of offspring, very few of whom will survive for very long. Tuna, for example, lay 10 million eggs. Salmon lay about 5,000. The most prolific uh, animal are mola mola, which lay about 800 million eggs. Um, and so uh, very few of them will survive. And so just the lives of nearly all beings that have ever lived on Earth are short and full of intense suffering. Um, and so this is not the behavior that we would expect of, um, of a perfect being for them to just, you know, muck around. Given utilitarianism, such, such observations just disconfirm theism, right? Yeah. And I think, and I, I mean, I think that they're going to disconfirm theism on any even remotely plausible view of normative ethics, but certainly so on utilitarianism. So, um, the lesson I think I see from this is that if we're theists, we don't want to be utilitarianism, yeah, utilitarians. Um, yeah. However, if we are religious skeptics, we can be utilitarians. Utilitarians that doesn't have any negative consequences, but we're not committed to avoiding utilitarianism. So you could be a utilitarianism and increase your religious skeptic case against the theist. But really, the lesson is is that if you're a theist. You've kind of got to push back on utilitarianism. But well, by accepting utilitarianism, you just you open a box of problems that seem almost insoluble. Go ahead. You were about to say something. I'm sorry. Well, I don't, I don't think that I don't think that's. I mean, the thing is, so I was I was describing how hopeless I think the challenge is for the theist rebutting the problem of evil, uh, conditional on utilitarianism. Uh, but I could have just ended that sentence without the last three words, given that I think that the problem of evil is totally hopeless on any plausible view. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but, but it's I, even worse on utilitarianism. I think it's worse. I don't think that it's so much so, and it'll also defend, depend on the flavor of utilitarianism. So if you adopt a view of well-being where you think, for example, that uh, there are various goods that accrue as a result of soul building, so perhaps like knowledge or uh, you know various valuable relationships, 
um, then maybe some of the theodicies will still work. And then there are more complicated theodicies, like the non-identity theodicy, which say basically that, I mean, the non-identity theodicy is too complicated to explain in a short period of time. I was going to say, I was like, oh man, are we going into the non-identity problem right now? <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, it's possible. There are still maybe ways of, of saving it, even if you are a utilitarian. But I do think that it makes the, ch the task more difficult. Um, and I mean, uh, and, and certainly if you're a Catholic, like you can't be a utilitarian. For example, I think like I'm pretty sure. I mean, I haven't looked into this extensively, but I'm pretty sure that just like uh, official Catholic teaching forbids utilitarianism. Um, so, so this we're we're winding up our time for this episode. So for the audience. Um, for anyone that's interested in diving deeper into this uh, rich utilitarian tradition, what would you recommend people to read? Um, okay, so I think that, uh, so if you want to read about the tradition, the best person to read is, uh, so Peter Singer and Katerina de Lazari Roddick wrote a book called The Point of View of the Universe, where they summarized Sidgwick, and that's clearly much better than reading original Sidgwick. Henry Sidgwick, for those not familiar. Yeah, I haven't read Sidgwick. Sid well, I've read a little bit of Sidgwick. Sidgwick is very boring um, and very difficult to get through. Um, and so I think I'd, uh, I would not recommend reading original Sidgwick, but uh, Singer and Delazari Roddick are, are guys and quite good writers and I think summarize things quite well. Uh, in terms of if you're just looking for a kind of decent introduction that I think also just has you know, really good insights on a lot of things. And I actually think that this will contain more arguments that move me personally, and I think should move should move people towards utilitarianism than uh, the point of view of the universe. Music is by the Chicago-based band Casserole. If you appreciate the content and the tone of what real atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing an episode on social media. We also have a Patreon, to which you can make a small recurring donation in support of the show. Special thanks Tyler Bimrose, Jason, Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Keshi Samara Rira, Kim Bischkowski, Anthony Lawson, Jeff Rubinoff, and Brandon McCleary.